Um, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Um, also, speaking of moving to Emmanuel, I think one of the biggest pros for that, if we can pull it off in the middle of August, is that it's cooler there. It'll be in the morning. It'll be cool in the, uh, where we're meeting. It's kind of hot and muggy up here, uh, even though there's people with hoodies on. Crazy, crazy man. Um, so anyways, um, that'll be a great thing if we can pull that off. We're in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, we're going to be going through verses 18 through 29 tonight. Let me read it, and then we'll, we'll pray together. The author to Hebrews goes, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that, uh, and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that, that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For those, for those could not endure... What was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Even Moses said that, speaking of Mount Sinai, when God, when the theophany appeared in fire and smoke on top of the mountain, when the law of Moses was delivered and Moses started ascending and descending before the presence of God, it was, it was, um, It wasn't a warm and fuzzy moment of worship. It was super scary. Verse 22, But you have have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the of sprinkling that speaks better than the things uh, better things than that of Abel see that you do not refuse him who speaks for if he did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth much more shall we not escape if we turn from him who speaks from heaven whose voice then shook the earth but now he but now he has promised saying yet once more i shake not only the earth but also heaven Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Jesus, I pray that you would lead us through this. I ask Jesus that you would be here and I ask that you would speak to our hearts, and I, I ask that you'd start with me. I, I pray that you would invade my soul and my mind, that you would expose the things that I um, even would rather not be there, and, and that, you would ex- that you would convict, that you would let, release our grip of things. God, that you would draw us steps closer to you tonight. Lord, we ask for an encounter with you, And I pray that you would also help us be willing for that. Help us to really mean that. When we ask for an encounter from from you, I pray that we'd really want it. Um, And I confess that sometimes my heart goes apathetic. Lord, wake me up tonight, I pray. Use this scripture as you have done so many times. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Hebrew is a book written to people who are really shaken up in their lives and they're ready to give up. One thing after another keeps slamming these people. And, you know, thing about trials is that, you know, you, you start out pretty good when a trial hits. So you learn some bad news or, you, or, or you're up against a, 
uh, you know, a corner or whatever. You start out pretty good, but it's the monotony, it's the continual pounding, it's the slow nibble, the ebbing away, and eventually you just gas out. You just think, man, I'm just done. I can't take this anymore. Usually trials go on longer than we expect. Um, usually they go on longer and they outlast us. They outendure us in several ways. And that's where things start to get brutal. At first we think we're okay. That's what was going on here to these Christians. They were getting hit over and over and over again. And there seemingly was no end in sight in the city of Rome and the persecution that was coming against them. They were societal outcasts, constantly being persecuted, marginalized, made fun of because of their faith. Constantly, all the time. Constant pressure from society, all the time. You're wrong, you're not one of us, you're outside, you're lonely, you're alone, you're afraid. Constant, all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time, all the time. So the author to this, the author to them, he decides to write a letter inspiring them over and over again at every turn. It's really one theme throughout this pastoral epistle, this book, this sermon really, is one theme. Different angles, different ways that he's inspiring them. Don't give up. Hang in there. Hang in there. And today he uses the word shakeable and unshakable. He's wanting us to know how we can be unshakable. To be honest and to be fair, we live in a pretty plush society. Sometimes it feels a little embarrassing to say that we are being persecuted in any way, shape, or form, and yet we are. We are. The psychological uh, um, warfare is incessant here in the West, and it's only getting more intense. It's only getting more uh, troublesome Um, With a year like 2021, 2020, with all that we've been facing over and over again, and really, there's—I would be foolish to join with the um, to join the voices that are saying it's all now going to be back to normal, because maybe it will, maybe it won't. The reality is, in this life, and you you can hear it at the end of this thing. He said in verse 27, he says, "Now this yet once more indicates the removal of those that can be shaken." Those things that can be shaken, as opposed to the things that which cannot be shaken remain. So here's the idea. The Bible has a lot of different takes on what it means to suffer. A lot of different angles, not that are contradictory to each other, but are complementary to each other. And one of the angles that the Bible uses when it comes to your trials and your suffering is a shaking and to see what's going to stand. It's a, in other words, it's a testing time. Not a testing as in a pass or a fail, but a testing in terms of a revealing of what things that you're depending on, that your life is gripped on, and that you are completely leaning the, the uh, load-bearing parts of your soul on that, can't, that can't, hand, can't stand up, can't hold it, can't handle it. That's one of the purposes for a trial. They're healthy. They're good in a certain, because God is moving through them to strengthen you. So you can see at the end of it, oh, this part remained. I have a a dear friend that's spoken here before named Dave Barnhart. I refer to him also uh, often because not only is he a friend, he's also like a hero for me. Because I think he is, when I think of of a Christian person who is authentic and it's real, uh, without me even trying his name and face come up to my mind. 
Dave and I found Jesus together, or Jesus found us together. I don't know. We, we, we grew up together in the same town. We've known each other since we were little kids. And we met Jesus together, went to the same church together, grew in the Lord together. We were best men at each other's weddings together. We went into ministry together. And he, uh, his ministry experience was a youth pastor, and then uh, eventually he and his wife, Rama, left and went to Russia, to uh, eastern Russia, a place called Perm, Russia, where he led a church, and his agreement was to take over a church for three years to raise up a local to then lead the church there. They didn't believe this particular mission strategy wasn't to bring in Americans, but to bring in Americans to train up locals, disciple locals, so that local people who knew the local language and culture could could be embedded there. And that's exactly what he did. He finished strong. It was one of the hardest three years of his life. So much trial that only really me as his best buddy really knows about. Um, But tremendous, tremendous trial, but he finished strong. And Dave came home, and he became obscure when it comes to ministry type of stuff. Dave and I were raised by a guy, discipled by a guy, who made basically ministry our identity and the end-all, be-all. You guys are called to be ministers. And um, it became an idol super fast. Um, We weren't valid in our minds unless we were in ministry doing what we're doing right now. And the testing ground came for Dave because Dave came back from the mission field to a completely different church that sent him out. That's, that's the missionary story. It's really hard for a missionary, you know. Missionaries go from a church like this where we know... Can you imagine one of us, we've known each other for years, goes out to Siberia or someplace, and then you're out there for five, six, seven years. Well, what happens here during that seven years? Well, people move, people go, new people come, kids grow up, and when missionaries come back, they come back to their home church, and nobody knows them anymore. They become a people without a home. They don't belong there, and they no longer belong here. And they find themselves coming back to their home church introducing themselves to people for the very first time that should know them. It's hard. It's a a hard life. Dave and Rama, they had had, uh, some children in Russia. They come back with their family. And Dave um, is not offered a ministry job. In fact, he joins a church in Portland that did not see his credentials, his experience, his no, I mean, the guy's an incredible Bible teacher. He can lead worship. He's a well-rounded individual when it comes to the ministry gig. He's somebody that anybody would want to pick up. They did not find value in him. And he stayed at that church for 10 years just as a member. Them not realizing, or maybe they were threatened by, I have no idea. It was a, it was a total head-scratcher the whole time he was there. And he started a business he became successful. God blessed that business. And eventually, two, three Christmases ago, Dave, at Christmas dinner, stood up at his Christmas table to bless his meal with his families, and he fell over and started convulsing and vomiting blood for his Christmas dinner. The ambulance rushed in, took him to the hospital, and they told him, you have got a tumor the size of a grapefruit in your head. And it's probably been growing there since you were just a kid. Very slowly. 
growing. And now it's threatening your life. And Dave, never forget, I was on Christmas vacation in California with my family when all of this happened. And of course, I called him right away and I called him every night. And I called him after his surgery. Um, It was pushing up against his optical nerve. So there was a high, high possibility that that for them to take it out would make him, would render him blind permanently. It was uh, causing his, it was causing a growth hormone. If you know Dave, if you've seen him, he's extremely tall. Come to find out that's a, that's a response to the tumor that was pushing out this growth hormone throughout his whole life to make him big. And extremely, it wasn't his genetics, it was this thing going on. Um, he always struggled with snoring and sleep apnea. Turns out it was this thing pushing on his... I mean, all of these kind of quirks about Dave were kind of, in hindsight, oh, that's why. <laughs> well, I called him after this surgery. He was all by himself in the hospital. His family wasn't allowed to be there at night. And I called him, and I'll never forget, he said, you know, Mike, this shaking, I'm so pleased that I'm finding real faith. He said, all the years of me worshiping the Lord, all the years of me studying my Bible, all the years of me getting up early, all the years was like me putting a deposit in the bank, in savings, for a time like this when I would need it and I would be shaken to my core. And... I'm so glad I did because here I am and I'm able to draw from that account and God has met me here in this hospital room. Dave is not currently a pastor. He is, but I'll tell you this, he is probably more effective in his life as a good neighbor and a friend and a faithful husband and a faithful father than he, than he was when he was a pastor. And, but you, the thing is with trouble, with, with suffering, here's the bummer. In order to find out what you're made of, you got to go through that part. You can't skip that step. There, there, you know, this is the classic, um, you know, anti-our culture and American thing. You know, we, we, whole entire business models are made up of the line, hey, what if you could get skinny without working out? And without going to the gym. And you could eat whatever you want. And, 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 and you know, we're, we're faced with that all the time. We're conditioned for that. We want the character, the grit, the patience, all of that stuff. We want it all without the shaking part. And unfortunately, God, it's throughout the Bible, we can't get away from it. God uses the shaking and is using the shaking, and will use the shaking that is to come in your life. Peter says, those who, love, those who live godly lives will suffer, not might. So the suffering that will come in your life will reveal things about you. And I don't mean that in a condemning way. I mean that in a helpful way, in a revealing way. And I feel like I need to say that because when it happens, because it will, things will bubble up to your surface that God will be saying, will you give this to me? Character flaws, things that you wish weren't there, things that 
on your own, you probably don't have the bravery to face on your own. You, I, you know, I wish we did. But it takes sometimes life taking us by the scruff of the neck and shaking us up and for those things to bubble up to the surface, to stare us in the face, for us to face those things and take those things to Jesus. And um, you know you've, you, you'll know when it's true suffering and true shaking when you realize that you're no match for whatever that thing is. If you, if you are faced with your character flaws and you think to yourself, I can do this, I will conquer this beast by myself, well, then the, the job isn't quite done yet. The shaking will continue, see? Here, the, the writer to the Hebrews is, is talking to these guys about not only is this, not only is this shaking happening in your life, this persecution, this incessant trial, not only is it um, unfortunate, not only is it inev- inevitable, the writer to the Hebrews, and I will say the Bible throughout, will say suffering is Necessary. It's necessary for us. It's necessary. I'm, th- I'm thinking of another time where I can't remember, I think it's Philippians, where Paul is in prison and Paul says, um, and I'm going to butcher it because I, I didn't write it down, but Paul says basically, I can paraphrase it, he says, I don't want you to be sad for me. This is good. This has happened. This trial is actually turning out for my salvation. And scholars, the reason I remember this is because I just read about how scholars were debating. What does that mean? Paul just said his suffering is making him saved. Wasn't he a Christian at this point already? What is this talking about? Um, And in the Bible, there's there's different tenses for for what it means to be saved. There's an eternal sense, saved eternally. Um, There is a, a... a future sense, and there's also a present tense when it comes to being saved. In other words, Paul was saying, I need this in order for me to be saved from me. From me. Um, can you think of the suffering that you're facing or will face as a gift to you? Is that possible for you to turn that around in your mind tonight? I'm, I'm inviting us all, including myself, to transfer whatever is ailing you or whatever your scared will from the loss column into this is a gift. God is the greatest alchemist there is. Alchemy, um, anybody know what alchemy is? It's a myth. It's back in the um, the Middle Ages where they, they believed that there were people, alchemists, that could turn um, seemingly worthless pieces of metal into gold, like metal ore and those types of things, that they could change it magically, magicians, into gold. They were called alchemists. Of course, you know, it was a gimmick. It wasn't, it wasn't real. But... That's, uh, in Philippians, that's actually a word that Paul uses. It's translated, it can be translated as alchemy. In other words, God is the master of changing what is seemingly worthless in your life right now into something that's golden for you. 
into something that makes you tested and tried, that sanctifies you, that pushes you closer to Jesus, that does something to you without which you would not have done on your own. But unfortunately, you have to go through it. There's no skirting it. You can't skip these steps. We have to go through this. How do you face life? How do you face the world? How do you face troubles? If someone questions or criticizes you, how do you deal with criticism? That's a big issue. If someone important in your life deals with, uh, is criticizing you, someone that you really respect is criticizing you, how do you deal with that? How do you face yourself in the mirror? How do you look at your past and your regrets that are now coming to bite you right now? How do we do that? That's all. All of that is part of the human experience. That's what this is all about. Trials. And the answer to all those questions in almost every case, because it's the default mode of the human heart, is that we say to ourselves, we say to our critics, we say to the world, or we say to God, what do we say? I've done my best. At least I can say I did my best. I can walk away with my head held high because at least I know I did everything. That's kind of our attitude. I choose my standards. I decided what kind of life a human being should live. I'm not perfect, but I've tried my best and I'm better than a lot of other people and I'm doing a pretty darn good job and I think God will know that. And that's basically how we face life. That's the... In the West, that's, that is the greatest armor that we can come up with to face what's out there. Do you think that's going to stand? And if you're a traditional older person, you might say, well, I've tried my best to live according to some moral standard, to care for my family, to, to work hard, to never tell a lie, to do what's right, that type of thing. And yet, when it comes, when it comes right down to it, if we're all saying, I'm not perfect, but I've tried my best, I really have, and I'm better than an awful lot of other people, I haven't done that bad of a job, I'm a good person, honestly, no, you're not. Can we just, I mean, let's make church a place of honesty. No, you're not a good person. You are deceived. You have, and, okay, also, you have not tried your best. <laughs> no, you haven't. In fact, we haven't even come close, really. What is the, you have, not let, you have not yet resisted your sin according to bloodshed yet, right? If you do the most simple reflection on some of the most basic moral principles, there, you're going to see that you're deceived when you try to tell yourself that you're a pretty good person. If you can just have a moment of honesty and clarity. Um, take the golden rule, for example. Just take that one and apply it to yourself. The golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I will just say that there's never been a day in my life that I've made, that I've made it through the day where I've worked as hard at understanding other people as I, as I want them to understand me. That's what the golden rule is. That I pour out my effort, my time, and my energy for the betterment of someone else the same way that I would pour out time and energy pursuing my own dreams and my own goals. Can anybody honestly say that we've done that? Or that I meet the needs of other people with the eagerness, the promptness, and the energy from, for which I meet my own needs? 
I don't even come close. Not even close. It's an outright self-deception to say, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty much live up to, I, I pretty much live up to the standards. Nobody does. Nobody does. Stop lying to yourself. That's the first thing to do. Be honest. We all fall short, dramatically short. Everybody's a moral failure. Everybody fails. And the fakeness in the way that we look at ourselves and face life and face difficulties is revealed in the most famous incident in verses 18 through 21 at Mount Sinai. This is, that's exactly what that, what that scene from the Old Testament is describing. Look, he says, for, for you have not come to the mountain that you may touch with, with, that is burning with fire and blackness and darkness and the tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that whoever heard it begged that those words shouldn't stop again. This is describing the famous encounter of the Israelites with God. That's what this is describing. God came down, met the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. His presence came down on the mountain and he gave the Ten Commandments. And the people got got close. They drew near to the very presence of God. And guess what? It was not a fun experience. (laughs) They weren't like, oh, this is just mm, so good. You're just basking it with their latte. Mm. That was not what was going on. They were shattered. They felt as shaken as the mountain was shaking. They were shaken. And so here the Hebrew writers you know, smacks us with seven negative images to get across how shattering and devastating an experience to the nearness of God is. You guys want to get near to God, he's saying? For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire into the blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of, of, of words so that those who heard it begged that the words would stop being spoken. Can you imagine coming to church and saying, oh, I pray that God doesn't speak. We make it sound like, oh, I just want God to speak to me. These guys are like, no, you don't. No, you don't. When people come up to me and say, I just, you know, I don't like a lot about the, the Bible, but I love the words of Jesus. I think to myself, you've never read the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus are crushing. They're shattering. They're shaking. They get you to your core. If you're not shooken up by the word of God, you've not heard God's word. Yeah, had an encounter with God. If you can sit through without being affected by that, by the way, every place in the Bible, and I, when I, I try to, when I speak hyperbolically, I try to make it accurate. But really, every place in the Bible that the presence of God comes into a building or comes into a space or comes onto a mountain, it's fatal to go near it. Every time. I've surveyed it. Every time. Why would this be? Well, let me give you an example of some things that I've seen over the years working with... Um, young people, especially in Seattle. Um, the Seattle area is one of the, by the way, in fact, Wallingford is one of the more, more well-educated neighborhoods in the city. Um, the demographics of Wallingford is that 80% of the, 80% of the residents of Wallingford have a special, have a bachelor's degree or higher. Very, in fact, Seattle, a few years ago, on the front of the Seattle Times, was called the most educated city in the nation. 
lot of degrees, a lot of people, a lot of people that are smart and have looked into a lot of things. Everybody is driven to be a student here. <laughs> That's one thing I've learned about working with young people. I, you know, I grew up in a little town called McMinnville. And um, there was a lot of pressures for us to do a lot of things, but going to school and becoming college grads was not one of it, not one of them. People that, there was people that wanted to do that, and they were like, you know, they were in a league of their own. But in the Seattle area, it is, it is a cultural accepted thing that you will go to school and get a degree. Like going to a specialist school or going to a trade school is kind of looked down upon here culturally even though that might be a better move for some people. Some people, it's not that they're not smart, they're just not meant for school. And doing other things, like the trades, trades and things are super important, but in Seattle, it's kind of a, at least when I've been working with students, tremendous pressure, especially in Bellevue, and to be honest, especially among the, the Asian de- demographic. Tremendous pressure. Uh, I served kids for 20 years whose families had moved to get into the zip code so that their kids could go to Newport High School because they knew that would get them a certain shot at a GPA and be scouted a little bit better to go to a, to a high Ivy League school. Tremendous pressure. I've sat across students that have fallen apart in tears because they got an A-. minus, And their dads are going to be really upset. That's That's... Environment, but from what I've seen over the years, um, this is how they face life. For some of these kids, school and being smart is how they cope. It's how they beat the odds. It's how they have some kind of control over their lives. It's how they face themselves. It's not just that they're smart, but being smart is how they they know that they're someone important, that they're valuable. It's an identity thing. So here's the problem. Because I stay in touch with all these kids that have gone through my youth group. Here's the problem. When you get into some of these high-level classes, you may get an A, you may get a B. The problem is, every student that's there is coming from the best schools in the country. Every student that's there. All of a sudden, when you left your high school, you might have been in the smart, like, top tier. But now, you're a dime a dozen. You're with all the best of all the nation. And the material is extremely hard and the demands are rigorous. I I had one uh, professor tell me, I was taking a Hebrew class, the language of Hebrew. And this professor said to me, Mike, Hebrew is going to be your girlfriend. He said, if you're going to learn this language, Hebrew is going to be your girlfriend. I said, what do you mean? He goes, You're going to take her out to dinner. You're going to think about her when you're laying on your bed at night. She's going to be the last thought before you go to sleep. She's going to be the first thought you think of in the morning. You're going to take her to breakfast. You're going to be writing letters to her in her language. (laughs) I was so terrified, you know, petrified. I was like, you know, I, I came in thinking, I got this. And then when I realized that ancient Hebrews has no vowels, I, I, I actually dropped out of the class before, well, while, the, while, I, while the window was still there to, to transfer from classes. Because I was like, I can't, I'm not, I can't do this. You know, I was intimidated. There are some people that the workload, when they go to that level of schooling, and for the first time in their lives, they get a B. And they come home, and they talk to their beloved youth pastor, and they fall apart in my office because they got a B. 
and it's so competitive. And if they don't get a good GPA, then they're not going to be accepted into the doctorate program that they're hoping to get accepted into. But it becomes a part of their identity. It's, so it's the total center of their life. They're shaken. And here's why. If the foundation of your life is, I'm the smartest, then to be in the presence of smarter people will destroy you. This is what this is talking about. The things that can be shaken need to be removed. And the things that cannot be shaken will remain. This is what this is talking about. This, in other words, Hebrews here is not just, is not just uh, telling us about some extraordinary event called suffering called a COVID-19 pandemic. Hebrews is saying, this is how God works in life. You get a B for the first time and you melt down because your identity was on it. You don't get the job that you were hoping for and you fall apart because your identity was on it. If your foundation in life is to be the prettiest or the most handsome, then to, then to get into the presence of a better looking person, will feel, you'll feel weak, you'll feel insecure, you won't be able to function. When we come into the presence of God, the way we are, think of this, God is the purest form of whatever it is you're seeking. Do you understand that? Whatever your idol of choice is in here t- today, I want to be smart, I want to make money, I want this, and I want to provide, and I want whatever it might be, whatever your, your thing of choice is, God is the purest form of that. You come into his presence, you are going to be shaken to your core. You, and you can get a little bit of this on a human level, can't you? Have you ever been working, 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 working hard on something and then you meet somebody to which that thing comes easy? What do you, what's the feeling? You feel in that moment invisible. You feel insignificant. You feel small. You feel ephemeral. You feel trans, translucent. You feel like you, feel like you, don't, you don't what? M- matter. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the mat, the weight. The Bible calls it glory. Uh, that's what it calls uh, the kabod, the Shekinah glory of God. It's, it means the weightiness of God. Have you felt that way before? When you're before somebody that's important, that outranks you, and maybe they ignore you, they don't notice you? That's the shaking feeling that's being described. Here are the Israelites. They go before God, the purest form of whatever it is that they're hoping, of what they're hoping to be. And they, they beg to stop because they feel so inferior before a presence that's so beautiful and so pure and so, and so perfect. That's what it means to come before the presence of God. You know how awful it feels to be ignored by someone important, important to you. Married people. It's a good way to start a fight. Ignore her when she's saying when she's bearing her soul to you. Or ignore him when he's having that one vulnerable moment. And he's not vulnerable very often. Just treat it. Yeah. You wanna know why? How does the Bible describe, you know, we, we think when the Bible talks about hell, we think of it as fire and brimstone and punishment and pain, and it is. But you know what the essence of hell is in the Bible? 
It's the fact that God is there. What does Psalm say? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my, if I make my bed in Sheol, the underworld, you are there. The definition of hell, I think Richard actually said this to me the other day, but the, the description of hell is that God is the most important, beautiful, outranking being in the universe that ever has been and ever will be is in your presence. And he says, depart from me for I never knew you. You'd be invisible. You're not there. That's what's going on here. They're coming before that kind of a presence on this mountain. And we're shaken in those moments. And it hurts so good. Because we know, okay, what's going to remain, what's, what's eternal to me. Paul the Apostle talked about this too in Corinthians. We talked about a judgment called the Bema Seat. The Bema Seat. And it's a judgment that's built on the foundation of the apostles, but we build on top of that in our Christianity with other things like wood, hay, stubble, sometimes, sometimes stones, and sometimes all these things. He says, when the eyes of him like fire gaze, up, gaze upon your structure at the end, when it's all laid bare, some of you will be saved, sure, because you've got a foundation, but the rest just go up in flames. And you, in other words, it's a prioritizing moment, judgment and trials are. Have you, have you had that feeling where, where you, all of a sudden you realize what matters? Maybe it was a near-death experience. And there, the things that you were fretting about right before that moment are things that aren't, don't matter at all anymore after that moment. The things that could be shaken were removed, and the things that remain, the things that matter, the things that count, they stay. It's a, it's a moment of clarity. It's a beautiful moment of clarity in a world that can get so gray and muddied. Trials, straighten it out. And that's what it's like to be in the presence of God. Who's up? Who wants to sign up for that? That's what it's like. We're, I guess here's my point. We're not talking about... it. Well, let me ask you. Is what we're describing here, does it match what you think about when it, comes, when it comes to a Western idea, church idea of entering into the presence of God? Cozy, comfortable, very entertained, no conviction, nothing confronted. I know a lot of pastors that think a good service is a non-confrontive service. That's how we know we've hit our mark. Everyone leaves feeling better than what they did? Where according to the Bible, a good church service is like a good Asian meal. It's sweet and sour. <laughs> it's sour in that, oh my gosh, I am... I, so here, when I, I'll just be straight up with you. When I'm studying the Bible, and when I'm thinking of you all, and I'm making a sermon, here's what I'm thinking. Because, and not because it's my thing, but because I believe this is what the Bible's going to do and what the Spirit's going to do. Everybody in this room, everybody should come in here going, wow, I'm way worse than I thought when I came in here. Conviction. Shake. And everyone should leave saying, and I'm more loved than I ever dared imagine. Even still. James chapter 4, verse 6, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. James 4, 6. But he gives more grace. 
I'm, I'm way worse than I thought coming in here. All of our pride should just fall and we should be humbled, all of us, before the presence of God here today so that we can in his presence say, okay, and yet his love goes that far. What is it that cannot be shaken? What is Hebrews getting at? What is it that can't be shaken in your life as a Christian? Nothing other than the love of God. Think of it. Everything else can be taken away. Can it not? Your career, gone. Your health can go. That's, that can, any, basically, the rubric here is whatever can be shaken is shaken so that it will be removed as an identity founder, as something that you're basically worshiping. We usually think of really bad stuff, like drugs or alcohol or something like that, what we think to be bad. If your family has become the ultimate thing to you. Families are great, are great things, great people. Very important. But if they become the ultimate, it's, it's an idol. And God forbid they can be taken. It happens all the time. I have, I've been a pastor now for really a long time. <laughs> it's crazy for me even to think about that. And the funerals that I've done for people that... Um, had all sorts of plans. People die with plans all the time. People in the middle of the night, their condominium, just like that. So that the things that can be shaken will be shaken. You guys, you're going to walk out there today, and you already came in from out there, so you know this, but I'm going to tell you, you're going to walk out there today, and you will be shaken out there. And the enemy, will, this life, will not pull punches. Will not let you take a break. Will not let you get a breather. Will not let you catch your breath. And when, you down, when you're down, we'll think of that as an opportunity to kick you harder. That's where we're at, you guys. Don't be disillusioned. If you're disillusioned at this life and mad about this life, it's because you're expecting it to be heaven. It's not. It's a broken world. It's beautiful and broken. And it all can be taken. What is the one unshakable thing that he's talking about here? The love of God. Last point. How do you know that the love of God is unshakable? Only in the cross and communion. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ was shaken. The presence and the wrath of God came upon him and shook him to his core. And in that moment, in that moment, Jesus Christ lost everything. Even, even what is now unshakable for you, a relationship with God. What did he say? What did he say? My God, my God, why did you leave? In other words, God the Father ignored his son so that he would never ignore you and me. Calvary Wallingford is not maybe here forever. Could go. America could go. Your paycheck could go. 
Your 401k could crash. The market could go away. We could be invaded. We could be, I mean, on and on and on and on and on and on. The point is, shake. And the things that can be shaken will be removed. And in that moment of clarity, you will see what, what like my friend Dave, the love of God is here. I could lose my kids. I never forget what he said. I've, he said I've, on the phone to me, in there, he can't even, he was blind for a while. His eyes won't, wouldn't go straight. And he said, I've taught my kids how to live well. I'm thinking that now I might need to teach them how to die well. He said, I'm thinking that now I might have to teach them how to die well. In other words, even my kids can be taken from me. But the love of God is here with me. Is here. It's the only thing that cannot be shaken. The only thing. And that is the only way to stay afloat out there. That's it. And that's why we come here on Sundays and why we keep taking communion because it's a reminder of the one thing that cannot be taken away. Jesus' relationship with God was taken away so that yours never would be. It's the great exchange. He took the abandonment that you deserve. (laughs) He took the judgment that you deserve, the abandonment that you deserve, so that you would never be able to say, God abandoned me. No, he did not. The cross says otherwise. No, No matter what. And this is why, okay, I know I'm going off here, but I'm going to do it. This is why Christians throughout the church history have not judged God's closeness to them based on their external circumstances. God must be close to me because I got a job and promoted and this and that and this and I'm blessed and I have the Midas touch. No, Christians have said, no, God is close to me even when I'm losing it all. That's how they've been able to do it. Through all the persecution and all the stuff that Christians have gone through. They have not questioned, other people question the love of God when bad stuff happens. Am I being punished? Has he abandoned me? Has he left me? Not Christians whose life is founded on the cross. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's a sure foundation. The wind may rave and the oceans roar. But with Jesus in the boat, I smile at the storm. It's John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace. Jesus in the boat, I can laugh at the storm. When bad things happen, you guys, it doesn't mean God hasn't loved you. No, 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 no. He has not abandoned you. And some of us, I think, need to repent of thinking that. Maybe today is the day that you say, okay, I'm, I might do a lot of things, but henceforth, I am not going to doubt the love of God in my life ever again. He paid too high a price, too dear a price, to prove to me that he would never, ever, 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 ever leave me and never forsake me. Amen?